Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to the Your Family Dog podcast. I'm Tina Spring, uh, and I'm joined today by Julie Fudge-Smith, my smart and pretty co-host. And today we're going to wrangle a topic that I think we've kind of wrangled before. Andrew Hale wrote a really great blog post on this. Uh, that we'll link to, and I'm going to quote a little bit from, and we may invite him onto the show to talk about, and it's a shift that's happened kind of over the last 30 years from training being maybe relational to more being task-oriented. And I think just in life, we've had that happen, right? It's do the laundry, make dinner, get to the ball game. And we sometimes, I think, get lost in the emotional stuff that may be a part of the journey. So in Andrew's article, he talks about that this focus has sometimes moved people into applying more pressure and more aversive tools for their dogs. Because if your mindset is all about how your dog is being obedient to you, then we become very, very invested in getting whatever the task that we deemed so important done, done. So we start to see often an escalation. So if a dog, if a child, if a partner is resistant to whatever our idea of the task is, there tends to be an escalation in how we're going to tend to proceed. So I see this constantly with grooming right? Specifically toenails. That if the dog is resistant to having their toenails cut because that doesn't feel terribly safe and comfortable for them, suddenly we're adding three people, a muzzle, and, you know, a a whole bunch of aversives and force to get the job done when, generally speaking, less is more and you can get more accomplished without having quite so much force involved in this system. Am I doing an awful job of explaining this? (laughs) No. What I would say is that it's a complex topic in the sense that it requires an understanding of sort of where we are, where we have been, and where you and I would like to see us head towards. And so what I think the problem comes is that having been on the front lines of all this for a while, it's easy to get involved or to see the minutia of it. When I think what we perhaps want to take a step back is talk about the bigger issue. Right. For example, I get people who are like, the dog is pulling like a jerk on a leash and they start adding all sorts of nasty, aversive tools and get advice to do the same, like they give advice to do the same. And in the end, why the dog is having a hard time being over threshold on the leash is a bigger issue from my perspective. Um, I, I got to see Suzanne Clothier here in Atlanta a few years ago and one of my favorite quotes, and she is a quote generator, but one of my favorite quotes from her is, we add equipment when we lose the dog's mind. And I would say that that's absolutely true. If the dog is not focused on what the handler and the dog are trying to accomplish together, we start adding more and more equipment. It's one of the reasons, like, my dogs are taught polite leash walking without a leash. Right. I don't want to use a tight leash 
to try to control my dog. I want my dog and I to learn how to walk together. I'll add the leash later. Right. Well, one of the things I wanted, I was thinking of when you were talking was I believe that society puts an awful lot of pressure through social media, through uh, Facebook is what comes to mind, but there are other social media outlets like LinkedIn and Twitter and a variety of others that pressure us towards perfection, towards having the perfect life, the perfect kids, the perfect house, the perfect car, these Kodak moments that we're supposed to live our life and present to others as being the reality of our life. And that's really not the reality of our life. But there's a certain pressure to drive us towards perfection in behavior. And so I think that because we see or we have this pressure to do things right, when our dogs, who are sentient creatures, don't do things perhaps the way we think they ought to, or like, for example, the other day I was at the post office and Clementine, for some reason, decided that this would be a good place to bark. And it's like, Clemmy, you know, we, we don't really need to bark in the post office. She didn't hurt anyone. But the postmaster came out and told us that if she didn't stop barking, she barked three times. She went, woof. And then she barked again. And then the third time, uh, we would have to take her out. And I was thinking, one, we're the only ones in the post office. Two, all she did was bark. And three, okay, I get that. You know, if you don't want your dog to bark in the post office, that's absolutely fine. She doesn't. You're right. She probably shouldn't bark in the post office. But the idea that there was something really inherently wrong with a dog letting out with a couple of woofs in some ways brings home to me this whole idea of how we're supposed to be so task oriented and so behavior oriented and not looking at the fact that dogs are dogs and people are people and we don't always perform to perfection. And to demand that level of perfection on our dogs is not fair to them or to us and takes away from what we really want, which is companionship with our animals. So one of the things that I'm often asking families is, let's say I'm trying to teach you something and you're like having, you're wrangling that. You're having a little bit of a difficult time sorting out exactly how to get it right, and you make some mistakes. Do you want my assumption to be that you're a jerk and that now I have to put more pressure on you and yell at you or make you uncomfortable in some way, blah, 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 in order to gain compliance because you're not being obedient? Or would you rather that I take the perspective that maybe I didn't get enough practice in or I didn't show you correctly or I didn't communicate clearly, right? I don't assume that everybody I interact with is a jerk or I wouldn't be able to leave the house. I assume that everyone who comes to me is struggling with what's going on with their dog and they want to learn different and better ways to work on that, right? I don't assume that they're a jerk, but I do see this pretty consistent escalation to dogs coming into me wearing a shock collar and a prong collar and this and that and a harness and blah, blah, blah. blah. And the poor dog has no idea why they're in trouble. They just know that they are. And so the first thing I'm doing is removing all that stuff and saying, okay, we're going to lock the gate so nobody can let a dog in and they can't let your dog out. You're not going to have your dog on a leash. Here's some string cheese Get your dog to stay with you. Right. I, I do the same thing. I, the, um, you know, an enclosed area, you're walking, 
you're talking to your dog, you know, or you talk to your dog and they come, oh, hey, good to see you, Molly. Here, have a piece of cheese. Molly runs off. Molly comes back. Pretty soon, Molly's going to figure out that it's right by that person's kneecap that the cheese happens. And this is pretty cool. So I, I agree with you. And I also find, too, is is that, I, I, at least I don't know, do you find that, that people also want instantaneous results? They want to be able to. To go walk through a parade outside of Braves Stadium on opening day with a dog who's perfectly focused on them and not at all overwhelmed by the environment. I'm like, if your dog can't walk with you in your living room when it's just the two of you, he or she's not ready for that environment. Like baseball players don't sign a contract and immediately run out on the field and start playing. They go to practice and their coaches have been coaching them a variety of different ways over the years to get greater and greater perfection. Right. And I, I feel that with, with dogs, like I, I was just seeing a client last week and she said, these are the problems that we're having. And she said, and we talked a little bit, she goes, I suppose you probably should have practiced what you showed us. So again, like, and we've talked about this before, right? That I get a family who comes in and says, okay, Step one, we're going to work on this. And I'm like, that is clearly step 12, right? right? Like you left your learner about 10 months back because your dog is still struggling with that there are squirrels in existence and that is a big pull on the brain. So until the dog learns how to take in the environment and not be overstimulated by it, no, he's not going to hear you calling him. And so of course people get frustrated. We live in a world right now where I can pick up my phone and pull down pretty much any information I want at any time. If I know what questions to ask, I would be able to do a search and gain likely somewhere in there accurate information. So big surprise that we lack impulse control. We lack tolerance for frustration. We get frustrated that we can't go from zero to 60 with the dog every single time. When you see my dogs in public, like that's a lot of practice we've done. Right. The other thing I was going to say is that not only can you get information and get maybe good information off the internet, but just because you have the information doesn't mean you have either assimilated it, practiced it, or figured out how to apply it in your particular situation. And so you can get great information, but sometimes we need some help in figuring out how to do it and also give ourselves some time to figure it out. For example, Brad and I have taken up curling and <laughs> it was just been really fun. We're on our third lesson, but I got to tell you that there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. And so last night as we were working on, we were doing different drills as we were working on it and the, and the instructor was saying, okay, that's good. Now think this, now think that, now think this, now do that. And so all these things are piled up and that suddenly when we're playing a game, I curled the wrong way on one. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, this is an accumulation of knowledge and practice and figuring out, oh, that's right. I need to raise my hips up here, or I need to push a little bit harder there, or this all comes with doing and practicing and figuring out what's right for you 
in that particular situation. There may be techniques that work for everybody, but you've got to figure out how to apply those techniques to you. And I think the same thing works with our dogs. But beyond that, this is more than just figuring out the right technique to get your dog to stop barking. This is all about whether or not you un- you have a relationship with your dog, because oftentimes the relationship with your dog is going to give you more of what you want than the strict obedience will. Right. So a quiet dog who's sitting next to you being compliant is not the same as a calm, relaxed dog who's prepared for the environment that they're being asked to enjoy. Those are two different things. You're right. You're right. And then there's also the dog who may not be calm and compliant, but may have just given up. This is learned helplessness because there's nothing I can do to get myself out of the situation. So I might as well just roll over on my back, urinate all over myself. So you've got a a broad spectrum of behaviors. Or just check out. Yeah. Right. I mean, I get a lot of I get a lot of people who their dog is just taking a break. They're just taking a breather. Like you're, they're assimilating information you just taught them. And the owner is mad as a hornet that the dog's not paying attention to them and is distracted. And I'm like, I love you. While I've been doing this lesson, you've checked your phone 87 times. Could we slow our roll, please? Like this dog is going to assimilate information a different way than you would. And they, they need breathers too. They need a moment to think. So in most interactions with our dogs, trying to get whatever behavior, whatever it is that we were hoping to get, starts with what is the first behavior that you can reinforce. Right, right. I will also tell people, I like you said about the, you know, giving uh, dogs a chance to breathe. We as primates tend to repeat ourselves. So I try to ask my clients to ask your dog once. And then give them a chance to respond, especially if we're working on something new and we're just teaching this cue. Give your chance, you know, count to five. I said, it'd be kind of like me looking at you going, what's the capital of Michigan? 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 It's Lansing, in case any of you don't know. But it's the same kind of thing is, is I didn't give Tina a chance to even respond to what the capital of Michigan was because I kept asking and asking and asking. And I think sometimes we have to understand that we need to slow ourselves down. We need to be watching what our dog's reaction is to us. Give them a chance to respond. Because sometimes I just remember like with with Buckley, our Bernie's mountain dog, who we always joked that he had a Pentium 95 processor and it was 2012. But you would ask him something. You could just watch him still. Okay, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three. Oh, that's what you want me to do. Give him a chance to respond and then you can reinforce that. So you're right. You look for the first rewardable response and then you start to build on there. But give him a chance to give you that first rewardable response. Well, and honestly, part of it is. So Jack, Jack is seven years old. And he likes to trash talk neighbors when we're on a walk, specifically the dachshunds around the corner. They've got it coming. So today I put him on a leash. We went in the front side yard. So kind of on the side of the driveway, I sat in a chair and I listened to a podcast for 15 minutes and Jack and I hung out outside on a leash. Now, you better believe he gave me a look like, hey, lady, 
the leash implies we're going to go yell at dachshunds. He gave me the look and I was like, I know sometimes the leash means we go trash talk dachshunds. Other times the leash means we hang out in the sun and we listen to the Penny Royal podcast. Like you'll be fine. Right. So then he came back in. He was relaxed. The next time I picked the leash up to take him out, he's a little more centered again. Right. All of a sudden he goes out. He's like, ah, we're not going to yell at dachshunds. We're just going to lay in the sun. I'm like, good thinking, buddy. Right. Well, that dog, I can start building on polite leash walking because I'm not already trying to walk the black stallion who's up on his back feet screaming at dachshunds. Right. I've changed the context. So I don't have I didn't have to, by the way, put not that I would put a shock or a prong collar on him or a gentle leader or a harness. He was just on a collar and a six foot leash. We walked outside. We sat in the grass. We chilled out for five minutes. We came back in. We did that a few times, and I'll start growing it from there. Right. And that's really similar to stuff that I do with some of my clients who, when they're working, especially like on socialization. Here in Granville, we have the north side of Broadway, and we have the south side of Broadway. The north side is the busy side. The south side is not so busy. So one of the things that I will do with dogs who are reactive is we will start on the south side over by the library where it's not very busy. And there's some benches that set back. And we'll just sit on the bench and feed treats and watch people go to the post office. Well, and and honestly, sometimes the treats make it more of a training thing, right? I really just want my dog sometimes to hang out with me and not lose his marbles. Right. Right. So I'm going to put him in a situation that he can handle. We're going to watch the world go by. And that's it. There, there wasn't even string cheese involved. And that is his love language. We just hung out. Right. And at the end, I got a bunch of cuddles. And Jack's not cuddly. But at the end, Jack was like, oh, okay. Like, you can cuddle me a little bit because I'm digging the mom and pup time. So for him, that's what he needed today. And believe me, that was way more rewarding for me than going around the block telling him not to yell at dachshunds. Right. So what I was thinking of is, is that when, for example, in Granville, if we start at the library where there's not a lot of traffic, we can watch a few things and most dogs can keep their minds about them. And because these, these seats are recessed from the sidewalk, people aren't getting any closer to the dog than 10 feet, right? So we start there. And then maybe we move a little bit farther down by the bookstore or the Chinese restaurant, and that's a little bit busier, not as busy as the other side of the street, but it's a little busier. And so we can build in the level of busyness as the dog gets comfortable, like, ah, oh, that's what we're doing. We're sitting here watching the world go by, not trying to attack the world going by. This is pretty cool. So the idea here is start at a level at which your dog can be successful. Maybe we start in front of the Granville Inn, which is even less busy than in front of the library. But find a place where you can sit and watch the world go by and the dog is not going to lose your mind. And as they begin to get better at that, then you can move to some place that's a little bit more exciting. And then that would be a place maybe where you have a little bit better treat or you have like you didn't need string cheese. But maybe if you move to a little bit more exciting place, you would have string cheese in order to reinforce looking back at you. So there's a lot of things I think you can do that helps your dog learn that the world is a safe place to be, 
It's comfortable being with you and build your relationship with your dog. Because one of the things I think we need to, to emphasize here is that dogs view the world very differently than we do. And a lot of it has to do with the idea, is this safe or is this unsafe for me? And when we understand that, we can help build a safer world or our dogs feeling safer in the world, then I think we're going to have a lot less reactive dogs on our hands. Well, one of the things I would say is, would you stay engaged in a relationship where the criteria were always constantly getting harder, right? If every time you engaged in interaction with another human being in your life, if they were constantly asking more of you, how enjoyable would that relationship be? How much would you look forward to spending time with that individual? I'm a very generous person. I'm generous with my time. I'm generous with my love. I'm generous with my energy. The number one way to get me to absolutely avoid you like the plague is to demand more of me because I know me well enough to know that I am generous. And if you're pulling on me that I'm just not giving you enough, that is actually a you problem, not a me problem. And I think we do that to our dogs all the time. Our dog was doing their own dog thing. They were enjoying their own dog stuff. They're dealing with their own dog issues. They've got their own dog sensitivities. And we're so wrapped up in what we want that we're constantly pushing them. And then they don't want to listen the same way that you wouldn't want to listen if I was constantly telling you that you were wrong and getting and not good enough, right? Like no one enjoys that feeling. So part of it is, I think, saying, okay, it's okay to rest at this level for a little while. Like if Jack never, ever is comfortable going for a walk around the block, that is okay with me. That is not the sum total of our relationship. I can go for a walk around the block by myself. I don't have to make him do it perfectly if that is not in his gifting. And to be clear, if he does melt down during the, during the walk, I'm really not all that bent out of shape about it. Because it means I put him in a situation he wasn't ready for. So I have methods and modalities of, hey, that was a lot. Let's try doing this. How about this? How can I support you? And getting him through it. Because that also is part of our partnership is that I'll help him through the stuff that I accidentally set him up to fail. The relationship is worth more to me than the behavior. Right. Which brought to mind another client of mine that I had who had this lovely dog, but she really didn't like going for walks. She found the world to be kind of scary. She was actually super happy playing ball in the backyard. That's what she loved. She was very engaged. She was really fun. She'd play ball with, um, if you want to play ball with her in the backyard, she was really open to this. And, but they really wanted to take her for a walk. And we, I finally said, you know, let's talk about this. If, and I said the same thing that you said, Tina, which, which I think I got from you, which is if you want to go for a walk, maybe it's not with her, you know, go take yourself for a walk. I said, so let's think about what she's comfortable with. And so we went, we were in the front and we went about a half a block and she, she turned to me. It's like, I need to go home. So we went back home. So I talked to them about, you know, what is it that you really want and how is, how happy do you want to make her? So the next time we met, they said, you know, we've been really thinking about that. And we've decided that since what really makes her happy is playing ball in the backyard and going for a walk doesn't make her happy, we're not going to take her for a walk 
we're going to play with her in the backyard because we really, what's more important to us is that she be happy as a dog. So what they did want to do, though, is they sometimes like to sit on the front porch. So what they would do is they would sit on the front porch, which was, you know, back from the street, and the dog was comfortable. They had the door open so she could go. She was on a tether. She could go in or out of the house as necessary. And so they'd sit on the front porch and, and have something to drink, a nice tea or a beer or whatever. And the dog could go into the house. It was overwhelming. Come out and spend some time with them if they wanted to on the porch. So they did that for a while. And it was about a year later, they sent me a video of them and her happily walking around the block because they had allowed her to venture out as much as she was comfortable and retreat when she was uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the things that we need to think about is that we all had days where we're much better at something than other days. And so if your dog's having a day where I just, you know, the schnauzers across the street are overwhelming to me or the dachshunds or whatever it is, then fine. If there are other days that you can tolerate that, that's good too. The other thing that I also talk to people about is also, and I, I was so appreciative when you said you were out there with Jack for what, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. These little adventures going into downtown Granville, I'm not talking about sitting for two or three hours in downtown Granville. You can do this for five, 10 minutes, however long is necessary. Watch your dog. If they start shutting down, it's time to go home. In fact, maybe it's time to go home before they shut down. It's kind of like uh, being at the theater, always leave them wanting more, right? Go, have a few minutes, they're relaxed, this is good, everything's hunky-dory. Maybe then it's time to go before we shut down. Well, and it happens on both sides of the coin, right? We tend to talk a lot about the dog who is fearful, right? It also happens with the dogs that gets way too excited. Good point. Very good point. Right, with the people who every day they walk to the dog park and turn their dog loose to play, and now their dog is, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and rude on the leash because they're anticipating I'm going to get to go play with all my friends and, and high arousal and excitability is kicked in. So for those dogs, you're slowing things down. You're like, it doesn't always mean we're going to the dog park. Absolutely. Like, I love you. It, it means something different. And that every time we go to the dog park does not mean you're going to get to play. Right. Because it builds energy into a system that's emotional baggage that can be really dangerous. Right. If your dog goes bebopping into the dog park and someone has a dog who maybe is ill suited for that there, there's a decent chance your dog's going to race up and be rude to a dog that they don't know and maybe not read the signaling yet and get themselves into mischief. So whether it's a dog who's anticipating something that they view to be good or whether it's a dog anticipating something they view to be negative is kind of immaterial. There's a little bit of like, okay, wow, you're too excited. Like, I'm happy that you're happy, but we're not going to make great decisions when we're out of our mind excited about things. Good point. Very good point. Again, I think we're focused on, I must walk my dog every day, or my dog must do this or must do that. When it boils right down to it, the list of things your dogs absolutely have to do or not do is relatively short. Most of us have, you're not allowed to poop on the dining room table, right? Right. Although if you're Clementine, you can probably stand on the dining room table, but you can't poop there. 
And then she's not really allowed to stand on the dining room table. It was just taking some convincing to convince her that she can't. Well, she can. She's seen her do it. Yes. Yes, she can. But she's not supposed to. But you're right. Right. So one of the things that I would say is that, again, I'm very careful about what my dogs are learning. And what I want them to learn, first and foremost, is that I have their back and I'm a soft place to land. So more important to me than whether or not we cut all of the toenails on the same day is that my dog and I are pretty good dance partners for each other. Right. And if that means it takes a whole, you know, I'm cutting three toenails a day, every day for the rest of the dog's life, but that leaves our relationship healthy and happy, I'm okay with that. Like, that's totally fine with me. Me too. I couldn't agree with you more. And and that's why I think it's also really important to understand if you want to take your dog to to a groomer, maybe you need to talk to the groomer about what your dog can and cannot tolerate. And that it's okay with you if the dog only gets bathed, that the dog may not get his toenails done that time. So I think that your obligation to keep your dog safe in your relationship can extend to give some grace to the person who may be helping to take care of your dog so that they're not put into a situation where they're not building a relationship with your dog, but destroying their relationship with your dog. So make sure that you talk to, you know, those who are helping you care for your dog so that everybody's relationship is taken care of. And so that your dog finds that the world is a trustworthy place to be, not just with you. Right. And again, it's relational. What's more important to you? All of a sudden, I have a lot of dogs who are being adopted by families that have documented, we know, have been through pretty major trauma. And sometimes I think the families expect that because the dog is in a new environment, that that all gets wiped out. It doesn't. And it's super frustrating to the humans. And I struggle with it feels really, really unfair to the dog because I'm like, OK, you have this dog who's been through extraordinary trauma and now you're mad at him that he doesn't know things that no one's ever taught him. And we're just expecting that trauma to go away. Like if you were in a horrible relationship where you were assaulted physically, is it a reasonable expectation that when you come into this relationship that's all miraculously healed and you don't have any baggage from that. No, absolutely not. Or if you were horribly abused as a child, does that mean that today that should have no influence at all in your life? Because, well, I'm not the one who abused and neglected you. And, and we understand, of course not. That would, none of us would go, oh, right. Of course it would just completely go away. We all know that it wouldn't. And yet I have to slow down and really extend grace and try to explain this dog has been through immense trauma that's documented. Like we know the dog has been traumatized, not the dog is shy or doesn't like men or whatever and just has a sensitivity, but a dog that we have documented trauma, that's going to take more of a handler and an owner. There's going to be more grace. There's going to be lots of taking pressure off. There's going to be lots of repeating lessons and the understanding that not all of it is likely to heal. So the dog is going to likely have sensitivities that we can't adjust. Right. Dr. Patricia McConnell was on Your Family Dog and a link to hers. She came to talk about her book, The Education of Will, 
which was about healing trauma in both her dog and herself. And so I highly recommend that you take a look at the book. It's it's very, very good. But I think one of the things that people don't realize about trauma and something that you have hinted at with what you're saying, Tina, is that trauma is both diffusive over time and experience. So that when something traumatic and genuine trauma is when an unexpected negative thing happens quite suddenly, right? It varies between people and animals. Something that may be traumatic to me may not be traumatic to Tina simply because of where we're at this particular week. Or it could be vice versa. Something that doesn't, it just rolls off my back or takes me a couple of days to get over. Tina may struggle with for a couple of weeks or more or, uh, you know, maybe never get over part of it. So I think one of the things we need to understand is that if you don't address the trauma and you don't help the dog or the person to feel safe again, then what's going to happen is that trauma feeds into our very deep instincts and says, okay, this place was not safe. So any place that's similar to this might not be safe. And any person or dog who's similar to the person or dog that scared me may not be safe. I had a, a schnauzer client once who was attacked in the dog park. They were leaving and a dog came out from around the corner and attacked this dog quite out of the blue, stitches in its side. At first, the dog re- refused to go back to the park and then it didn't want to go outside and then it just didn't want to go anywhere except its own backyard. Then at first, it didn't like big black dogs and then it didn't like any big dogs and then it didn't like any black dogs and then it didn't like any dogs. So that this trauma diffused over both time and experience. And it took us a long time to get this little guy to feel safe again. And that's understandable. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what was so exciting was, I don't remember how quite how long it took, but I think it was well over a year. He was finally able to join my walking Granville class. We could walk with other dogs in Granville, a small little group. And we thought that was a huge thing for him. And he did really well. But it's not something that his owner did every day. It was on days when he felt like, you know, he's doing, he's feeling great today, whatever. But he was very attuned to his dogs emotionally. And if he hadn't been, we would not have been able to make the strides with this little guy that we did. Yes, I think right now for me in my universe, there's a little bit of me having to be as grateful for the dog saying, I'm not ready yet. This is uncomfortable as I am for the dog saying, we got this, let's keep going, right? Absolutely. Being just as in tune to the dog who says, yes, please, as I am to the dog who says, no, thank you, right? So if I go to do something with one of the dogs that that most of the time they can totally handle, but today they can't, I honor that because the relationship is more important. The same way that if I say to my girlfriend, like, hey, do you want to go to lunch today? And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't. I've got other plans. I don't immediately decide that she's a jerk and she doesn't like me anymore and we're not friends. There's something going on in the world right now that there is a lot of that with the dogs and really great, awesome people, by the way. It sounds like I'm judging them. I'm not judging them. I think this is genuine suffering on the human's part, too. That there's a tremendous amount of pressure. Absolutely. That there's some sort of idealized version of parenting or partnering with our dogs, our partners, our cats, our neighbors. And it's just, it's more nuanced than that. So I think when people let learning happen more naturally, like let your dog 
take in the environment and sort it out and work where they can do that before you ask them to do more. It sounds simple. It's not simple to do. You have to have a tremendous amount of tolerance for frustration yourself, right? It's always, I think, easier to go, okay, we're just going to, we're going to skip this step because we're not good at this step. We're just going to go on to the next step. And then be frustrated. Right. And I think that it doesn't necessarily even have to be with problem dogs. I think it's with any dog. I was thinking about when you're talking about that, I was thinking about Zuzu this morning with my first flat coat, Bingley. It took approximately a nanosecond to teach this dog to run out and get the paper and bring it back. Okay. My husband did it in, in one day and it got to the point where in Bingley's life, all you had to do is say, Bing, it's time to, and he was at the front door ready to go get that paper. People would come to the house. They'd, they'd bring me the paper. When they came up to the door, i say, oh, thank you very much. And I'd throw it back into the driveway so that Bingley could go up because that was his job. Zuzu, on the other hand, some days we can do this. Other days she's like, I don't know what you want. I don't, a paper? What do you mean paper? I don't think I can. So I have to walk down, point it out to her. Sometimes she's like, I can't pick it up today. So, okay, that's fine. I can pick it up. There are some days when I can open the door and, and walk out on the porch and say, Zuzu, go get the paper. And she runs down and gets it. There's other times it's like, can't do it. It's okay. Uh, we've been working on this for, oh, I don't know, months. And whatever she can do is fine. If she can get the paper, great. If you can't get the paper today, you know what? That's okay, too. This is not going to make or break our relationship, but it's something that she sometimes has fun with. And so, therefore, I'm going to try it, ask her to do it. If she can't do it, we go on. If she can do it, there's a lot of rewards. And, oh, aren't you good? And you're so smart. And look at you brought me the paper. Can you take it to daddy? And then she'll, like, run into Clementine who'll take the paper from her or whatever. What I'm trying to get across here is that no matter what the dog's nature is like, whether this is a dog who's, quote, unquote, normal or fearful or excitable, if you accept the dog for who they are, and work with their capacity and build a relationship that's based on cooperation and trust, then you're going to find that many of the things that you want to instill in your dog are going to come as an extension of that relationship. Right. Because when we slow down a little bit, when we ideally begin with, how is this for you, dog? How is your day today? How are you feeling about this? Your dog is much more quickly going to go, oh, yes, I'm happy to do what you asked me to do. It's when we ignore their world, their wants, their sensitivities, their weirdness, because frankly, they're weirdos, right? When we ignore that stuff and try to just push through it by a force of will, I think there's a huge cost to the dogs and frankly, to ourselves. Try to save that stuff for when it's an actual emergency that you have no option. Right. None. Right. You're only going to get to force a dog so many times before they're going to start taking exception to it. And it's going to start negatively impacting your relationship the same way that you can only force your partner or your child so many times before they decide that that relationship doesn't feel safe anymore. Right. And I also think, too, if you can take a step back Kind of like with Zuzu in the in the paper thing. It doesn't matter if she gets the paper, but it's kind of fun to watch. And it's kind of fun to, to see her try 
And let's put it this way. It deepens my appreciation for the individual that she is. It also, honestly, deepens my appreciation for the dog that I had, who he was and his special qualities. But I also love Zuzu for her and her special qualities, which are so different than the last one. And so being able to just accept her for the special soul that she is allows me to have a much more relaxed and comfortable relationship with her. So I think that I think the thrust of what we're trying to say in all of this is that we want you to love the dog that you have and to build a relationship with the dog that you have that works for both of you and to take some pressure off of yourself and take some pressure off of your dog. This is one relationship that should not have to be perfect. This should be a relationship that's about companionship and time together and having fun and and love. And you should not be driving yourself crazy to achieve perfection. If you're finding yourself getting frustrated, slow down, back up, right? And we do that with our kids, I hope. I aspired to do that with my kids, right? That if I found myself getting short with them, I would endeavor to put the brakes on and stop and slow down and go, okay, guys, like I've asked you three times, why are we like, why is there like, is, do we have a problem? Like what's going on? Cause it's not like them, right? It's not like my dogs to not do what I ask them to do. So if I ask them to do something and they're not doing it, I assume there's some sort of problem. Not that the dog is the problem, right? That I need to go hang on a second. Let's look at the situation. That's why I tell people, that's why you need to be so aware of dog body language. So when you're out with your dog, and he stops doing something that he normally does, you're not going, what the heck is wrong with you? You're more like, what the heck is wrong? Not what's wrong with you, what's wrong here? And then you you look around and you see, oh my goodness, yes, there is a rabid raccoon across the street. I don't want to cross either, or whatever the situation may be. But it allows you to develop the virtue of compassion and patience, which will stand you in good stead and hopefully make both you and your dog a lot happier. So Tina, anything else you want to add? We're going to have a link for that particular article, which is, I'm so glad you brought that up. We'll also have a link to the Patricia McConnell episode, as well as to her book, The uh, Education of Will. Susan Clothier's book, Bones Would Rain from the Sky. Is that another one we want to link to, do you think? Sure. Okay. All right. Anything else? No, I think that's it. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us once again on Your Family Dog. And we'll see you uh, next time. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.